Turn to the book of Ephesians 4 again. And we are again going to read the first 16 verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? And he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man." unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. (coughs) Our text this evening is verses 4 through Six. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. <coughs> Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, last time we considered the Word of God here in Ephesians 4, I said to you that we are going to take a section that really is one and split it into two. And we considered the first three verses of this chapter, but you knew then that it was intimately connected to the verses that we consider tonight And I think even the little children here 
are able to see that, that connection. Because the calling of the first three verses was to endeavor as our one great calling, the one great vocation of the child of God is to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we all know that that word unity is associated with the one, the word one. God is one, but God is also a unity. And therefore, these verses have the word one in them a lot. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Seven times the word one is used. The point of the Holy Spirit here in doing that and giving that emphasis is to bring our attention to the source of this unity. It was called the unity of the Spirit, but not much was said about the nature of that unity or its source or its life or anything about it, really. It only spoke about our calling. Tonight, we're going to consider the essence, the nature, the source, the goal, or the end of that unity. Now, what we know already is that it's a unity of the Spirit, the Spirit Himself. The idea is, when it says there is one body and one Spirit, is not that He's talking about two different things, but the idea of the text is that there is one body, that body being the church, exactly because there is one Spirit. The unity of the Spirit is the unity of the church, the communion of the saints, the beloved body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what the text means to bring to us, however, is not simply that there's oneness. That this is a unity of one a single entity. But the children, I think, even see that the word unity is a word that speaks to the joining together of many. You cannot have a union of simply one thing. It is only one thing. It's not a union in and of itself. But it requires many things to be brought into union. So on the one hand, there's this great emphasis on the word one. On the, under, on the other hand, the text brings to our attention a diversity. And you must see it. The Holy Spirit brings attention to it. What's going on here? In short, it's this. That exactly because the unity of the church is the unity of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the union of God, He's a person in the being of God, and God Himself is a union of three persons. Therefore, 
on the one hand, the unity of the church is the union of God himself. It has a certain character, a certain flavor. If you want to know why the church must be one and why it is one the way it is, the answer is because God is one. And so when the Spirit unites, it's going to have that character. Consider just the implications of that real quickly. What that means is this. Any attack, any minimization, any schism, any division, any separation within and from that unity is an attack, a minimization. It is a schism and division of the very being of God itself. Now, obviously, you can't divide God. But remember, the unity of the Spirit is the very union of God Himself. That points out, on the other hand, that what is the source of attacks and division and schism within the church, injury against the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, comes from sin. Specifically, selfishness. More specifically, individualism. It comes from the ego, from the I. The I that is not interested in the other eyes within the body, but only one's own self. And the antidote to that, that sin that we find within all of us, if we're honest, the antidote, at least in part, is remember that when we sin against this unity, we sin grievously against God in a way that we don't often think about. Now there's another reflection of this unity, what I call the tri-unity of the church. I use that word because this union is a union from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We're actually going to see that it's from the Father in the Son and through the Spirit. But there's another aspect that's brought out in this text, a threefold, we may say, unity, Another reflection that the church bears in its unity of the wonderful being of God, and that is the three points of the sermon. The things that are brought out in the text may be divided according to a threefold character that there is one source, one life, and one perfection of that unity. Consider with me then tonight that. The tri-unity of the church. That there is one source, one life, one perfection. <clears throat> one amazing aspect about the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is that that unity has one source. That is, there's only one explanation, one basis, one 
aspect or one source of that unity that is the unity of the Spirit. And that should be evident from the text and its context. That's made emphatically by the very description of this unity. Notice what it's not called. It's not called the unity of the church. It does not say that your one great calling is to endeavor to keep the unity of the church. Now we all know that's what it's talking about. But rather he calls it the unity of the Spirit. And then notice even this, that he doesn't call it the unity that we have by faith. He doesn't speak about the unity of the bond of the covenant, the unity of the fellowship, but the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That has reference later on in this passage to this hope, this perfection. That peace is the peace of God. It's a reference to the very peaceful life of God in the union of the Trinity. Notice also there is that emphasis on the source from the description of God Himself in the passage. There is indeed a reference to the Trinity as we're going to see. There is a reference to the Spirit. There is a reference to Jesus Christ and a reference to the Father. Yet, we read there is one God. This is simply about God. The idea is that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, etc., because there is one God. And the idea is that God is that source. The unity of the church is nothing less than the union of God Himself, that He Himself lives. This explains why unity in the church includes, among other things, unity of doctrine, unity of knowledge, and unity of confession. I bring that up because that's not mentioned explicitly. It is alluded to when it talks about faith. But it's really talking about a different aspect of faith. And so I bring it up here. The Apostle himself will bring this up when later on, and keep in mind once again, we do not need to exhaust ourselves on these texts or these verses because the Apostle is going to expand on this. But notice how later on in the section we read, he talks about the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And that has something to do with the perfect man, the growing up in the church. And then before talking about that growing, that maturing of the church, that perfection of this unity, he says he's teaching this in part that they be not henceforth tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. 
Now you may know that, you may have heard that before, but our text explains why. And it has to do with the fact that the source of our unity is in God Himself. It is the very union of God Himself. And so one cannot be one and enjoy the peace of that union without an understanding and knowledgement and enlightenment of who God is. It is not coincidence or a mistake that the very first thing, the first doctrine, the first truth that the church fought about and about which there was division and schism, the church divided into the faithful and to the heretical was over the truth of the Trinity, three persons, but one being. And the church articulated very carefully the nature of the Trinity, the relationship of the persons, the distinctness of the persons. The church then, to be one, to live as one, to appreciate that oneness must know about that source, namely God himself. Now, in this first point, I want to show that the text here is emphasizing not simply that God is one, and I hardly need to do that. When that word one is mentioned as many times as it is, Seven times, in fact. But that God is more than one. God is one, but more than one. Now, not more than one being, but indeed more than one person. Now, that too, I want to demonstrate from the text. This comes from the fact that this is a unity of the Spirit... And the unity of the Spirit of the God who is the Father of us all. In fact, we need to pay attention here to the text. And one of the amazing aspects of the Trinity, which is that there is in the being of God one who is Father, and yet the entire being of God is our Father. There is a Father from whom this unity flows. And yet, this unity flows from the entire triune being of God. That's what's being brought out here. Notice, one God and Father of all, And then it adds, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Maybe you've seen that expression before in Scripture and read it. In fact, we sang it. You can go back through the numbers and find it in a song that we sang. The idea of that phrase always is that it is a phrase that references the Trinity. 
Even when it talks about the Father as it does here, one God and Father, it wants us to think of the entire divine being of God who is above all as Father. That is the source of everything. Majestic and glorified, transcendent above everything, and yet through all, And in you all. You say, well, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. Not in God. God transcendent. God above God. God over all. As Father is also through all by the Spirit and in all as the Son. That's a Trinitarian formula. So you may tuck that into the back of your mind When you read that phrase, above all, through all, and in all, that's a reference to the Trinity. Now, what that's pointing out is something that we need to keep in mind as we proceed through here. I'm going to divide the three points of the sermon up according to the persons, roughly. When I talk about the source, I'm going to emphasize the work of God the Father as is done in our creeds and elsewhere. And with regard to the life, that this is the life of the Son. It's accessed and received in the Son. And then the perfection, we're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit. But when we do that, we must be careful. Because the Scriptures always remind us again that God is a unity. And none of the persons acts on His own or simply by Himself. Indeed, only the Son hung on the accursed cross. And yet, the Father and the Spirit were right there. The idea being the Father pouring out His wrath upon the Son and the Spirit sustaining Him. And we must keep that in mind here too. It would be a mistake to say to ourselves that the source of this unity, the source of this union is simply the first person, or that it's simply God. God in all three persons. It's really both, and we must always keep that in mind. Nevertheless, we're going to look at this from both perspectives. First, That the unity of the church is not something that finds its source or that does find its source in the work of God throughout all of time and history. Consider that. If in fact this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace finds its source in God, That means this unity has existed and been working in the world since the beginning of the creation. The unity of the church is not something that we just experience now in our lifetime or the church experiences now in the Old, in the New Testament. But all through history, God has been bringing into existence and unifying the church and doing that through all three persons. This is captured often in the, re, in the confession that the church is not only one, but Catholic. Also, 
And here you may see that the text is simply going back to something that we considered earlier and we saw earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that wonderful section in the book where the apostle is expounding on God and God's election. And there's this wonderful description of the power of God in and through the church. And we notice that that too was broken out into a Trinitarian section. That this election was out of the Father. There was a redemption by the Son and a sealing to the inheritance by the Holy Spirit. Well, consider right now again that in terms now of unity, we considered simply election. That election finds its source, our salvation finds its source in God, God as Father. But now, look at that from the perspective of unity. The idea is that this unity isn't simply being worked out now in time, but finds its source in all eternity. Notice, too, the implications of that for salvation. We've looked at the work of the Spirit and God the Son and God the Father from the perspective of salvation, of redemption, and an inheritance. But the Apostle now is emphasizing the unity. In other words, if one simply looks at salvation, abstract from unity, he's missed the point. Your salvation and my salvation is a salvation that consists in being unified, in being united. In fact, we may place that as the higher goal, that salvation only serves a purpose, and that purpose is the union of the people of God. And that finds its source in God's election of us. So there is a unity of the church. There is a unity of the church not simply gathered here, but a unity of the church through all the ages. There is a unity of the church here in this date of history with the church of John Calvin and Martin Luther, the church of Augustine, the church of the apostles, the church of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are one church. One church old, one church new. One church here and one church there. All having one single source. It's worth pointing out too that this unity must be perfected. We'll talk about that in just a little bit in the third point. But notice that if this unity has its source in God and it's a unity in God, then it is not and cannot be entirely perfected until the church is above all. And God who is above all is entirely through all and in you all. There is a part of the church always recognized in Scripture and in our creeds where God is not in them. 
or through them yet. But God, who is above all, will work and labor through the means that he normally uses to gather that church. And that is not perfected until they are in God and he is through them. So also the church is not entirely unified until that is complete. And we are above all in the sense that we, like God, are above sin and above death and above, therefore, division and schism and everything else that would rend the body. There's a practical implication to all this, beloved. And that is, we need to look at ourselves for what we are. When you look at the church, or when you sit here as a member of the church, when you gather here on a Sunday, what is the one thing that you look at and you are astounded and amazed at? Many things we could mention, right? We gather here and we marvel at God's grace and mercy, His undeserved favor shown to us, His electing love. We stand amazed at the humility of Christ to come into our flesh, amazed at the dispensing of the Spirit, and then be blind to the purpose of it all. Now the apostle is not. It's why he mentions it first. It's why he calls keeping that unity our one great calling. Even our amazement at the grace of God, which is a great power by which God affects this unity, is subservient to the unity itself. It serves that. That's why he's going to bring that up in the very next verse. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. But notice that serves the unity of the church. That's the great goal of God. That the church may be one. That that oneness may be perfected. And that's why, at least it's a reason why, we can so easily tear apart the church. Even when we're filled with all kinds of talk about Jesus and grace, even particular grace, irresistible grace, even though we can talk about the infinite mercy of God, we are so willing and able to divide and rend the church apart, even in the name of grace. You say, why is that? How could that possibly be? And the answer is because you don't understand in your own selfishness and pride, what the goal of it all is. What God's purpose is with the dispensing of that kind of grace. What is He doing? It's so that we as one may be one and marvel as His grace as one. It helps us see sin for what it is. We like to isolate our sin just like we, look at, we like to look at salvation from a very selfish perspective. We do. It is not unusual for us to take the attitude, well, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and if everybody else goes to hell, well, I don't really care. Or we act as if we're the only ones saved. Whether that's as an individual, an individual in the home, an individual church among a denomination, or even an individual denomination among the world. Very, very, very selfish about these things. 
But we need to see where that leads and where that goes. It goes to division and schism, ignoring this calling, and then imagining that everything is well. No. There is one great source of the unity of the church. It's not your unity. It's not my unity. It's entirely antithetical, as we saw before, to the unity of the world. It's not a unity that comes from pounding the pulpit and yelling and screaming. It's not a unity that's made by fighting and bullying. It's not a unity that's made by war and rumor of war. It's not made by coercion. This is a unity that's made by the Spirit, and it's kept by lowliness and meekness. Why? Now you know. And it has one source. God. God the Father. But now, if we see God the Father, we must see God the Son. And that's the emphasis of my next point when we talk about the life of the church. Notice, please, the emphasis throughout the book thus far on the life of the church. I know you were astounded at the emphasis on election, even that great Trinitarian section that we went through had the doctrine of election sprinkled through all three portions. So also the life of the church has been repeatedly emphasized. Certainly it's there when the church is likened unto a body. Certainly it's there when we remember that the church is like a vine, like a flock of sheep. But even when he talks about the church as a building, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, he emphasizes that it's a growing building. It's being edified. It must be strengthened. It must be built up. There's a growing to it. Now, why? Answer. Because the church is unified in the bond of the Spirit. In other words, it has to do with the union, again, of the church. It comes from God, and God is not a dead God. God is a living God. In fact, what's amazing here is that the Spirit even seems to ignore, at this point, all kinds of other aspects of the church. There's other things you would think maybe the Spirit could talk about with regard to the church. But he focuses upon the life of the church. Now the Spirit here also in this portion emphasizes especially the Son of God, the work of God through the Son Jesus Christ in whom we have that life. The idea is this life, this life of unity, this unity of life, this fellowship of friends is found alone in Jesus Christ. And it's a life that only comes through union with Him. This is what it's emphasizing when we read there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You may read that this way. 
There is one Lord Jesus Christ. The reference to Lord there is not God as such, but specifically the Son of God, that Lord. And then one faith in that Lord, and one baptism into that Lord. There is one Lord over the church. It is Jesus Christ. There is one head of the church, Jesus Christ. We are all unified in Him. That's another amazing thing here. We're not unified to God as such. We're not unified to the Father. We're unified specifically to Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. One Lord. Not two lords, not a hundred lords, not a million lords. The elders are not your lords. I am not your lord. There is only one lord of the church. Never forget it. Not only that, but this lord is servant. In Jesus Christ, we see what it means to be lord It is not simply to rule with authority and discipline, but it is to rule as a servant. He came as our servant. He came to serve us. Otherwise, we would not and could not be unified in Him. He's Lord over the nations. He's Lord over the peoples. He shows that by gathering His church from out of the nations. From the nations come His church. He gathers out of the sinful and out of the vile, out of the wicked, His own people. He dies for their sins. He sanctifies them and He brings them together into one body, one Lord. Thus also then one faith. And the emphasis here is upon Christ as the object of faith. You all know that faith is an instrument by which we are joined or engrafted into Christ. It is an instrument by which we are made one. We are unified with Him so that through that union comes all the considerable, wonderful, glorious life of Jesus Christ into, now notice, the church. Do you ever look at faith that way? We all know we all have faith. I have faith. You have faith. This person has faith. You would say to yourself, there's a million faiths. Nope, one faith. The faith that unites you to Jesus Christ is the faith that unites me to Jesus Christ. No difference. Same faith. Why? Because it has one object of that faith, and it has one source of that faith. And it's by the Spirit who is one Spirit. Again, changes your perspective, doesn't it? It's not true that there are many faiths, many ways to be saved. There's only one faith, and it's faith that has Jesus Christ as its object and you as its subject. 
faith that is not simply united to Christ, but exactly because the life of Christ comes through that faith, it's a faith that says, I believe, and I know and am assured that Jesus Christ is mine That I belong to Him and He belongs to me. I am Him and He is in me. One faith. No other faith. Anything else is not faith. And therefore there's one baptism. One baptism which is the sign and seal of that faith. That's why. And you can look this up. The Scriptures administered Baptism, not only in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but baptism was administered in the name of Christ. Ever look at it that way? Why would that be found in the Scriptures? And the the answer is, we're not simply baptized by the name of the Father, the Son, or in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we are baptized into Christ. We become partakers of His crucifixion, partakers of His resurrection. You see it, right? The life. It's not simply that our old man is crucified with Him there on the cross. It's not simply that the righteousness of Christ comes to us through the cross because we are so connected with Him. But when He comes out of the grave and newness of life, that life becomes ours too. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And therefore, again, we see that this unity has a certain character. There's only one life in the church. There's only one life in the church. There's only one life for the church. There's only one life through the church. There isn't one life for those who are in heaven and one life for those who are upon earth. Do you know that? You have the heavenly life now. And those who belong to the church who are in heaven are simply working out perfectly the life that they were given here. There isn't one life for the saints in the Old Testament and another life for the saints in the New Testament. One life. There isn't one life for the people who are old and one life for the people who are babies. One life in the church. Because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that one life has a certain character. It's not physical. It has nothing to do with your earthly physical life as such. It's spiritual. It's a life that changes the heart, changes the will, changes the mind. And it does affect the body. And it will eventually change your body too. It's a spiritual life, but it has an effect on your body in that because the heart is changed, the mind is changed, the will is changed, the body will serve God. will follow after God. We'll seek after God. Not perfectly. That has to wait until death. But that life in the body, that one life, will also regenerate, resurrect that body in which we shall live forever and ever. Again, there is practical application here. Because that one life, beloved, is the life of Christ. That means it's antithetical to the physical earthly life of this world. The doctrine of the antithesis is not something simply that we practice. It's not simply something we believe or we speak about. 
But it's the very nature of the life, the one life of the people of God. It's from above. It's not from this world. It comes from heaven. It's spiritual, not physical. It's fixed upon Jesus and not upon the things of this world. And that's simply the way it is. That is precisely why the church that is one, the church that is united to Christ, is antithetical to the world. It loses its interest. It separates from, in a very spiritual and real sense, from the world. We don't care. We aren't in love with the world or the things of this world. We behave differently, think differently, seek after different things. And you say, why is that? Because I preach it? Because it's found in the Bible? Because we're admonished? No. It all comes down to one thing. Because that's the life of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That union is life, and that life is the life of Christ. Now, the perfection of all this. What's amazing is that when it comes to the specific work of the Spirit, or that which highlights the work of the Spirit, there's not much said directly. When the text speaks about even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, it's highlighting there the work of the Spirit, even as the one Lord, one faith, one baptism highlighted the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and His work in affecting this unity and imparting this unity. Nevertheless, the Spirit, you see, indeed involved in all these other things. If you ask how it is that you have one Lord, always remember that He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was sustained in all His earthly life by the Holy Spirit. When you are united to Christ by the bond of faith, who is it that works that? And then that life that comes, that life of Christ, how does it get there? And it's the life of the Spirit of Christ. We just considered not long ago the sacrament of baptism. And we saw there the great work of the Spirit washing us and cleansing us in the blood of Jesus Christ. So he's not forgotten but like as is often the case, the Spirit works behind the scenes. Nevertheless, that being called in one hope of your calling is the emphasis is upon the Spirit. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Now keep in mind, and this is why I may be brief on this point, that it's referring to what was mentioned earlier. We learned there was a calling. One great vocation, one calling of the people of God. I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, and what? Even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. There it is again. 
Only here, he brings attention to something that he's going to elaborate on in the remainder of the, ver- of the chapter as well as the book. You see, we have a calling to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And there is a hope of our calling for a reason. Because it's not perfect yet. That's not the fault of the Spirit. It's not the fault of God the Father or of the Son. It's our fault. That unity is not perfected because sin remains in us. It remains in the body. It's not perfected because there are members who aren't yet gathered into the church who may not even know Jesus Christ yet, who know nothing of the life of the Spirit in Jesus Christ. And so, you see, the child of God labors with hope. Always the great motive of any calling, is it not? You mothers, when you labor in your homes with your children, and you endeavor to keep your calling there, you find it very difficult, do you not? It's not easy to have all the dirty clothes thrown your way with nary a word, not even a thank you, to lay out the meals, to get clothes for the kids and everything else that mothers do. But you do it. But you also know you do it with hope, do you not? What you long for and you hope for is that There will be a perfection of your children. That they're going to grow up. That all the things they say and they do as children, all the nonsense, all the even sins against you, you you long for them to become mature, to recognize their sins, to be sorry for their sins, to become mature adults. And that's the hope of the church. That's the one great hope of the church. That's the one great hope that carries the church through in its calling. That's why the apostle is going to turn from this and talk about the work of the Spirit and how God gives some apostles and prophets and evangelists for the perfecting of the church, for its growing up to become a mature adult man to be the complete body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that work is assigned to the Spirit. We forget that. We often focus upon Christ, rightly so. Our unity is in Christ. But the one assigned the work of uniting all those elected into Christ and uniting them to Him and bringing them all together perfectly is the Spirit. Imagine His work. Imagine what He's busy doing. Remember I said He's the one who makes this unity. It's God's unity. It's not your unity. It's a unity given to the church to enjoy. God affects it. God makes it. We only keep it. We only observe it. There's a practical implication of this and why I bring it up. We can talk about the maturing of the body in future sermons. But it helps you keep perspective about the church. Should it not? 
When you look at yourself, how do you look at yourself? You better be looking at yourself through faith, otherwise you will despair. Because there's not much to look at, is there? A small beginning, a tiny little portion of the new obedience. That's all we have. But it is the work of the Spirit. Look at the church. Do you see unity? Yeah, you do. But not the unity that ought to be there. Not the unity it could be, and, and sometimes we try to make it, right? We're going to all do this together, and we're going to do it this way and that way. We make a bunch of rules and regulate, and you can't make unity that way. Only the Spirit can. And remember what makes that work so difficult. It's your sin and my sin. And here it's worth pointing out what the essential horror and error of all of our sin really is. It's sin against the unity. It's sin against the body. It's sin against that which God has brought together. Yes, let not man put asunder not only the unity in marriage, but especially and more importantly, the unity of the members of the church. But don't despair. Have hope. Live out of that hope. Hope that in spite of your pride and my selfishness, in, in spite of our ignorance and lack of concern for this great work of the Spirit, and just think about that, how do you mothers feel when you do all that work and there's nary a thank you? Hardly a recognition. It hurts, doesn't it? And likewise, we can grieve the Spirit. Think of the work of the Spirit washing our laundry, causing us to grow, teaching, instructing, pointing out the unity, even pointing out the way. Be meek and lowly like Jesus. Live out of Him. Live like Him. Think like Him. And we're blind as bats to it. Don't do that. Live by faith, which means you live by hope. Hope in the perfection. Hope in the perfection by the Spirit. Not hope in yourselves. And that, beloved, is what the Spirit brings to us this evening. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord our God, we thank Thee for the church, the unity of the church for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We thank Thee, Lord, for one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in us all. Amen.